May the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In Acts chapter 10, St. Peter goes to a rooftop to pray. Not uncommon in ancient world to be in small homes, and so he went up on the rooftop to pray. And as he's praying, he kind of falls into this trance. This uh, heavenly vision comes to him. And he sees this great sheet, or maybe like a, a massive tablecloth, coming down out of the sky. And on this sheet are all sorts of of animals and reptiles and birds that were not kosher for a Jew to eat. And then Peter hears this voice that comes from heaven, presumably the voice of God. And it says to Peter, rise, kill and eat. Peter thinks this is some sort of test, I imagine, because he says, no way, Lord, you know, I've never eaten anything unclean. In other words, I've never eaten non-kosher food. I've kept kosher all my life. And the voice comes from heaven a second time. And this, this time the voice says, What I have made clean, you shall not call common. What I have made clean, you shall not call, in Greek, koine. It's a word that means common, like regular, ordinary. It also means vulgar or profane. You know, things that are not you know, the opposite of holy. What I have called clean, you shall not call common. Peter wakes from this trance. And he has no idea what in the world all this was about. He has no idea what's going on. You see, he, he lives in a Jewish world. All of his friends are Jewish. His entire family is, is part of this culture. No one serves bacon for breakfast ever. I mean, it doesn't happen, right? He doesn't spend the night with his friend down the street when he's a child and, you know, hey, guess what we had for breakfast? There's a little bacon on the table and I didn't know. So I, no, that never happens to him. He grows up in a world where everybody keeps kosher. Everybody lives in the same way. And so he thinks about this vision he has, and he realizes there must be some deeper meaning to it. Perhaps you have this with dreams. I, I, I like to do this as one of my things that I, I try to, to interpret my own dreams because dreams are like, um, they're like little stories your, your subconscious makes up to tell you something that you're afraid to think of and they're in the daytime. And so you have to sort of unpack them, you know, and maybe you have this dream too, you know, the, the walking naked down the street. That's the really awkward dream, isn't it, right? You wake up terrified, oh my, what does that mean? Probably has something to do with vulnerability and those sorts of issues, you know, or, or maybe you have the, the dream where you're driving the car, but you never seem to get there. Have you ever had that one? You know, you're dr- I don't know. I have a dream sometimes that um, I'm playing cards with George Washington and my Aunt Mabel and an otter, you know. I, don't, I never know what that one means, you know. That otter, was he cheating? I sort of feel like he was, you know. But that's Peter, you know. Rice, kill and eat. Oh, yeah, that can't be, like, literal. It can't really mean what it seems to mean. It must have some deeper meaning. You, of course, know it has nothing to do with food, does it? Nothing to all do with food. It has to do with people. In the ancient world, especially in the ancient Jewish world, lines of ethnic demarcation were very clear. Jews were a distinct people, the people of God, the direct descendants of Abraham. And so they had this sort of idea about their genetic purity to to, to maintain that ethnic identity. And everybody else was regarded by the Jews as the ethni, where we get the word ethnic. They were the nations. In other words, the Gentiles. Uh, they were the, the, the others. Very, not, not an evenly matched world. A very small population Jewish, and then all the rest of the world are basically the heathen. 
They are not from the right genetic pool. They're from different genetic pools. And so it wasn't so much about what one believed, though there was that, but your belief was predicated on your ethnicity. You were the people of God, and so you worshipped the God of Israel. Now, there were some Gentiles, some people from the nations, who looked at Israel and found it to be curious, interesting, even enticing. And they enjoyed the idea of a single God because only the Jews were doing this, the only monotheistic religion in the world at the time. And so there were people who said, yes, I think the idea of a single creator God is right. And, and in fact, there's some things about this, this culturally distinct people that make a lot of sense. And, and so there were Gentiles who began to, to kind of follow Jewish practices. They studied Jewish scriptures and began to live in some ways like the Jews. But there was always this barrier. Always this cultural barrier. Because even if you enjoyed and appreciated, you still could never cross over from the Gentile world fully into the Jewish world. This is the world in which Peter lives. So he has this vision, and you can imagine how just disturbing it was to him. Well, simultaneously, at the same time he's having this vision, in a city called Joppa, up the road in a town called Caesarea, there's another man. He's a Gentile. His name is Cornelius. He's grown up a Gentile. He's, li- he's a Roman soldier. But somehow he has become intrigued by Judaism. His imagination has been captured by Judaism. And he begins to live in a lot of ways, worshiping the God of the Israelites, uh, living in, in ways that are, are pious, giving to the poor, those sorts of things. He has a vision. Peter's down in Joppa having a vision. Cornelius is up in Caesarea, also having a vision. In his vision, an angel comes to him. The angel says... Send some men down to Joppa. There's a fellow called Peter. Go get him. Cornelius is obedient. No interpretation needed. He knows exactly what to do. He he dispatches some men to go get Peter. And then he does what you would do. Suppose an apostle, St. Peter, is coming to your house. You knew it was going to happen this afternoon. I know what you would do. You better do this. You better get on the phone and call your friend Joe Boisel, right? And, and then you would call some other friends, you know, your close family, people that you know. You would have as many people in your house as you could get. St. Peter's coming. It wasn't St. Peter then, but Peter, this godly man, he's coming. And, and so Cornelius gets everybody in the house. They're all ready. And then Peter arrives. Maybe one or two friends is with him. Imagine the scene. They walk into this house packed with Gentiles. A Jew would never go into a Gentile home. They would never eat at the same table with a Gentile. They wouldn't keep company with a Gentile. And here they're walking into a Roman soldier's house packed with all his Gentile friends. It had to be like like a serious cultural shock, right? A number of years ago, about ten years ago now, I was in Korea. I had a chance to go there with a bunch of doctoral students. They divided us up into pairs, two of us, and they sent us with a Korean pastor to go make um, house visits. Now, I should tell you, you should be glad that you don't live in Korea. Those, those, I don't know what they said, but those Korean pastors were stern. They, they would talk to these people with a rather, you know, sort of matter-of-fact tone, but the people loved it. And, and they would gather all their friends and neighbors in the house. And so here's Joe, who knows one word of Korean, kamsamnida which means thank you. I didn't know what else to say. I like, thank you. People would say, you know, some ridiculous thing, like, how are you today? And I would say, thank you. Um, Here, we know nothing. There's this group of people, and, and the cultural shock was so evident. 
This is Peter. He walks in to Cornelius' house. All of his friends are there. And suddenly Peter understands what the vision's about. It's not about food at all. It's about getting over cultural prejudices. It's about getting over his discomfort around being people that he thinks are not like him. In fact, they are. It's about you know, stepping aside from that desire to flee and stay there. Do not call what I have made clean vulgar. The word of the Lord comes. Don't you dare call what I have made clean vulgar, profane, koine. So Peter does what a preacher would do. He breaks out in a sermon. It's a good sermon. It's not a rather long one. You know, it's right there. It's not, in fact, his longest sermon. He breaks out in a sermon. And guess what he says at the end of it? Well, let me read it to you. And he says to them, to, to him that is Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins. And then Luke adds in the very next verse, the one that's in your, in your bulletin. And while Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. Wow! The Holy Spirit comes. I mean, it's a powerful moment. How do you know that the Holy Spirit comes? Well, for they were hearing, the, the, Peter and his friends were listening to them speaking in tongues and glorifying God. It was, a, it was this ecstatic moment. In fact, that's what it says. It was an ecstasis. They were amazed. They stood back and were amazed that this was going on. Now, I have some dear friends who, um, who are, you know, very charismatic in their interpretation of Scripture, and they'll say to me, you see, Joe, right there it is. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you speak in tongues. It's just plain simple right there. It's in the Bible. And I always push back and say this, and I think I'm right about this. What Luke is giving us is a description of what happened not a prescription for the way it should happen in every other instance. He's describing what actually happened. Moreover, the speaking in tongues was not for the ones who received the Holy Spirit. It was a witness to the Jews who didn't believe that they could receive the Holy Spirit. See, it wasn't for the recipients. It was for others who were standing around. I'm not saying that it's the gift of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues never go hand in hand. Sure, why not? I'm not even saying that it's past. Sure, it's still present today. But I'm saying that we need to distinguish between the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit, or the manifestation in this case. The Holy Spirit came to those who already believed. Well, what was going on? The gift of the Holy Spirit is like a baptism. You know, when we're baptized, we're even as a little baby or as an adult, wherever we come to faith, we're, we're taking the water. Sometimes it's a little splash of water, like a little shower. Other times it's lots of water. It doesn't matter how much water, as long as there's water. And, and we're bathed symbolically, right? We signify outwardly a bath, a cleansing of our skin. But what the Holy Spirit does is an inward cleansing. This is why we need not just water baptism, but a baptism of the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Holy Spirit cleanses us from the inside. Here's the process all the way throughout the book of Acts. Hear the word, believe in Jesus, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. Like that. Hear the word, believe in Jesus, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. But guess what happens here? They hear the word, they believe the word, they receive the Holy Spirit, and they've not been baptized. 
Ho, 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 ho. Oh, no, no, no. We have our good order here. This is not the way things are supposed to go. Peter says it too, doesn't he? He's kind of confused by this whole thing. Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just like we have? Okay, the order's all messed up, but it's clear that God is in this. So let's baptize them. Well, what's the takeaway from all this? So what? Okay, this is an interesting, fascinating story. So what to us? Um, well, the first thing I think that we should remember the words to Peter are good words to us. We should never call vulgar what God wants to make clean. We should never assume that something is unclean that God wants to make clean. I know this will come as a shock to you, but we too have cultural prejudices, don't we? We too have sort of, no, not that person, no, not them, no, that's him. Well, of course, theoretically, but not really. I don't know what it is. Color of a person's skin, their level of education, their national origin, you know, their command of grammar. I, whatever it is, we have our cultural prejudices. God says there's a place for everyone. And we ought to remember that, that there's a place for everyone in the love of God and in the, in the world of, of God's kingdom. That God calls us to go to everyone. Listen, I'm supposed to preach, but so are you. You can go places I cannot go. You can be in, in settings that I cannot be in. You could say the word of God by our baptism. We are commissioned to be proclaimers of the gospel in every place that we go. And when providence provides us the opportunity... We have the obligation to speak. To speak the word to them, because here's the second outtake. The word of God is powerful. It is powerful to say to someone, God came in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived, he died, he was raised from the dead and is ascended into heaven. That is powerful. And you say, well, you know, maybe they don't believe it. They'll look at me like I have two heads, you know. They'll say, no, nah, that's nonsense, you know, superstition. You know what? That word pierces through. It gets past this right here and gets right here to this. And it begins to like a seed that's planted inside. It begins to grow and it cannot be stopped. Don't worry about convincing people's minds. Be faithful to proclaim the message of the gospel. It is powerful. This is what St. Paul says, right? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of salvation to all who believe. It, the gospel, is the power. Proclaim this message and watch this power be unleashed. Third, the Holy Spirit is essential. The Holy Spirit is essential. Not extra, not additive. <laughs> essential. Required, critical to a Christian life. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as John Stott says, we need to be refilled with the Holy Spirit because we leak. You know, I don't know, maybe you don't leak. I leak. You know, I need this again and again. Come, Holy Spirit. In a, in a few months, we're going to have confirmation. Some young people will be confirmed. Pray that the Holy Spirit fills them, that they have this presence of the Holy Spirit with them in that confirmation. Lastly, God is sovereign. The right order wasn't there. <laughs> Baptism came after the Holy Spirit. But you know what? It's because this is what God wants. God can do what God wants because he's God. Right? There is no limit to what God can do. 
He is completely sovereign. I told you about going to Korea. The same year I got to go to London about 10 years ago. And this was a great trip because I got to go to Holy Trinity Brompton, an Anglican church um, in the city of London. And uh, it, it's a great church, very Bible-centered. Um, they're very charismatic, you know, all, all that. But, but they're doing great work. They, they brought the Alpha course to the world and, and all these sorts of things. And I got to meet the um, the the, the uh, vicar of Holy Trinity. He had just um, uh, retired. His name is Sandy Miller. Sandy's a great guy, um, a very prayerful, humble, genteel, godly man. Um, he wanted to show us this church that they were working on in an area called Shadwell in, in London, St. Paul's Church. And we went to this, and they were they were taking over this church because it had been down to like you know ten or eleven people were only ones worshiping there. So the bishop of London said. See what you can do with it. So they re, they were kind of doing some remodeling work on it, and they were going to relaunch this parish. Sandy said, "I'd like us to go up to this upper room, and, and I want to pray for you." And and so there are about twenty of us, and we are in this room, maybe a little bit smaller than this. And he said, "I, I want you to get in a big circle." And, and so we all stood in a circle, and, and he said, "I just want to go around and pray for you." And he had an assistant who was going to go on one side, and Sandy was going to go around the other, and. and and he said, I just want to stop and pray for you. And I'm like, oh, about that? That sounds like a great thing. Pray for me. I could sure use it. And he says, um, he says, you know, it might be that the Holy Spirit comes and, and it would be some very powerful manifestations of the Spirit. And I don't know about you, but I'm a very cerebral sort of person. And so I thought to myself, oh, my, you know, um, no, please, you know, can we just pray? You know, is there anything wrong with that? And uh, but I was, you know, he's a lovely man. You could not not like him. He's just a great guy. And he goes around and he's praying for people. And it was all very normal. Nothing happening. And he gets to me. I don't know. I've told you a couple of this story, but never publicly. He gets to me and he's praying. And it was very nice. You know, he just puts his hand on my shoulder and he's standing there and he's praying for me. And he asked us to, to have our hands, palms up, you know, praying. And as he's praying, I'm just thinking, oh, isn't it's lovely, you know. And all of a sudden I felt in my body this this sudden pressure. I thought maybe I was having a heart attack or something, but no, it wasn't frightening. And my throat, you know how when you're ready to scream something, how your throat tightens up? Mine felt exactly like that. And all of a sudden, my jaw starts to tremble. I mean, trembling, like teeth-chattering trembling. I don't know outwardly if anybody could tell what was going on. Most people had their eyes closed, you know. I had my head bowed. And, and, and I'm telling you, I'm in a full-fledged panic. And all I can think to myself is, whatever wants to come out, I have to keep in, you know? And so I, like, clench my jaws. I'm fighting this. This is not going to happen to me. Oh, my word, not here, not now, no way. You know, this is my thought. I know you're disappointed in me. You should know all the things you would have to be disappointed if you had any idea. But anyway, so here I am. I'm clenching my jaw. And Sandy's praying for me. His head is bowed, and he stops. And he says, Joe, I don't know why, but... But I sense that the Lord would enable you to speak in tongues right now if you wanted to. And he looks at me and he says, have you ever done that? I said, no. <laughs> he said, do you want to? No. <laughs> and he said, oh, let me pray for you. And, and he did. He just, you know, don't worry about that. And I didn't. I held it back. I was not going to. There was no way in the world I was going to do that. And I left a bit disappointed. You know, was it my pride? Just too arrogant? 
couldn't allow myself to be humiliated that way? Was it my theology? Maybe I had just said, God can't do that. That's, that's nonsense. That's hokey. I'm not going in for that sort of thing. But I learned right there that day that God is much bigger than any box I can make for him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.